If you're new, I'm Jamie. I am one of the pastors around here, and uh, today it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4. We'll be reading from verse 14 down to verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the black ones in front of you. And uh, Luke chapter 4 is found on page 859 of the church Bible. We have now come to the most important part of our week, or what Emil just called the main event, where God speaks through his word to his people. So we're going to read the passage, pray for the Lord's help on our time together, and uh, I will seek, by God's grace, to work my way through this passage and explain its meaning to you all. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. You are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you guide me and you lead me. Father, will you now guide and lead us through your word? Will you give us ears to hear it, that we might understand it, and that it might find good soil in our hearts and take root deeply and bear fruit greatly? That Jesus would receive the praise that only he deserves. God's people said amen. I wonder if you've ever thought about just how weird this is. You get up early on your day off. Those of you with children, get your children ready and dressed and fed. And then you go to church. And you sing songs to your invisible God. And you talk to this God as if he's listening to you. You fess up to him about all of the things that you've done wrong the previous week. You eat juice and a cracker and somehow you expect that to remind you of him. And even encourage you and strengthen you in some way. And to cap it all off, some guy gets up here and does a monologue for almost an hour on an ancient holy book. And you do this every week. If you think about it, Christians are kind of weird. This whole church thing that we're doing, doesn't it seem outdated? I mean, what do you got planned this afternoon? Churning butter and making your own clothes? Hanging out with Ma and Pa Ingalls? Some decades ago, Western churches noticed that young people were not attending church in the same numbers that they were in the past. And so they sought to reach a new generation of churchgoers by appealing to the sensibilities of youth. They sought to reinvent church in order to market it to the modern man. And so monologues became dialogues. Offensive language in the Bible about sin and judgment and, and, and hell was replaced by love, affirmation, and self-improvement. Stodgy old liturgy was replaced by felt-need programs and entertainment, which drew upon the emotions. And some churches grew. Actually, some churches grew very, very large. But yet it didn't seem to work. Overall, church attendance was still in decline, especially in the mainline churches. And this has continued, by the way. As, as recently as last year, religious surveys have indicated that less people are attending church and even less people considering themselves religious. And so, maybe it's true. 
Maybe Christianity is outdated. Maybe we have evolved beyond our need for primitive religion. The surveys don't lie. Less and less Americans are going to church. But if you look closely at the numbers, what you will find is that Christianity is not actually in decline. Quite the opposite. Christianity is actually growing. It is cultural Christianity which is dying. The sort of church-goer who is drawn in by less theology, less Bible, more self-improvement, those folks have truly stopped attending. But it may surprise you to learn that Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches are not only alive today, they're growing. In the West, to be sure, but most especially in the developing world. People are turning up on the Lord's Day morning in churches all across this world in big numbers. And those who are coming are hungry for God's word. Just listen to this. When asked what they were looking for in a church, 90% responded by saying they were looking for a church that believed the Bible was true and preached it. 90%. 88% said that doctrine was a decisive factor in which church they would attend. My own anecdotal experience bears this out. Just a few years ago, on a day I will not soon forget, I had three separate conversations with three separate people who said to me, unsolicited, that what they want in a church is one that preaches the Bible. One sister told me quite straightforwardly, I don't care about your stories, pastor. Tell me what God says. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Having been baptized, affirmed by his father, and tested in the wilderness, the Lord Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30. And wouldn't you know it, surprise, surprise, Jesus goes to church. And guess what he does? Preaches the Bible. You know, God could have sent the Savior of the world to do anything, but God sent him to be a preacher. We're going to learn a few things about the Lord Jesus today. We're going to see that he is a preacher. And we're going to see the function and the purpose of his preaching. And we're even going to see some of the effects of his preaching. We'll work through this passage a little bit at a time. In verses 14 to 15, we will see Jesus is a preacher. In verses 16, to the first part of 22, we'll see Jesus go home. We'll go home with Jesus. And then in verses 22 to 30, we'll see that it's, it's actually possible to be two at home with Jesus. As the Nazarenes, the people in Nazareth, reject the Lord Jesus. So let's get to work. Let's look at verses 14 and 15 again. Just read this again. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. 
Now, maybe of some interest to you, if you're a Bible student and you like such things, between verse 13 and 14, there is an entire year of Jesus' life. If you're someone who writes in your Bible, or if you're using one of the Luke journals from, that we gave out when we started this series, you may want to write in the margins between verses 13 and 14, John chapter 1, verse 19 to chapter 4, verse 44. John 1, 19 to 4, 44. This is the first year of Jesus' ministry, where he spends most of the year in the southern part of Israel called Judah, or Judea. Sometimes it's called by theologians the year of obscurity. For whatever reason, Luke decided not to include that year of Jesus' ministry. Luke simply starts here in verse 14 and says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. And again, Luke is at length to show us that Jesus is being led by God the Holy Spirit in his ministry. God the Holy Spirit is indispensable in the life of the Lord Jesus. All of his teaching and preaching and praying and miracle working is being done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus returns to Galilee to his old stomping grounds. This is where he was raised. The region of Galilee is something like 1,200 square miles. So if you were to take Miami County and and Dark County and Montgomery County and kind of put them all together, that's about the size of, of the region of Galilee. And most of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke takes place here in Galilee. Truth be told, 11 of the 12 disciples were from Galilee. 25 of Jesus' 33 miracles were done in Galilee. To the west of of, of Galilee is uh, the Mediterranean Sea. To the east is the Sea of Galilee. So the ground in between is very fertile ground, and it was a good fishing and farming community. And Jesus is traveling around this region, and news about him is getting out. And everyone is talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And if you're wondering why, Luke tells us why in verse 15. He tells us what has been causing such a buzz in Galilee. Jesus is teaching in the synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus is a preacher. And the ministry of the Word is of primary importance to the Lord Jesus. Jesus' ministry is being done in the power of the Spirit. I grew up thinking that if you had lots and lots of Bible in your life, you wouldn't have a whole lot of room for the Holy Spirit in your life. But I've since come to learn that spirit and truth are not opposing forces which must be kept in the balance in your life. A truly spirit-filled church is by definition and by necessity a word-centered church. A spirit-filled Christian is, by definition and by necessity, a Bible-saturated Christian. Do you see what's happening in verses 14 and 15? Just consider for a moment. The Spirit of God, through the ministry of the Word of God, is pointing the people of God to the Son of God to see him and celebrate him. We don't need to reinvent church. Let's just do this. What do you think? 
Jesus is a spirit-filled preacher. And after circling around Galilee for a little while, preaching, making a buzz, Jesus goes home to Nazareth. And what does Jesus do when he gets there? Well, wouldn't you know it, he goes to church. Let's pick up reading in verse 16, at home with Jesus. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus goes home, and Jesus goes to church. Verse 16, as was his custom, he went to synagogue on the Sabbath day. As was his custom. You know, the same exact thing was said of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Where would you find Jesus? Where would you find Paul on the Sabbath day? You would find him in the synagogue, with God's people, with God's word opened. Christian, who you are and what you love is shaped in large, pot, in large part by what one philosopher called the liturgical rhythms of your life. If you want your life to be shaped by the kingdom of God more than it is shaped by the kingdom of this world, well, then you would do well to follow the example of the Lord Jesus and of the Apostle Paul and go to church on the Lord's Day. Unless you are providentially unable, make it your custom to be at church. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian, but it's just what you do when you are one. I was recently encouraged by one brother who had to miss church on a Sunday morning because his family was sick, who then told me that another brother called him that Sunday afternoon and said, how are you doing? I missed you at church today. And by the way, don't miss church. I wonder if that's your practice. If you notice someone missing from church for a week or two, do you reach out to them? Do you call them to encourage them? Friends, let's make it hard for someone to fade from us. After we've made a covenant with them to care about their spiritual well-being, let's keep that covenant. And let's reach out to people when they start to fade away. The history of the synagogue was probably started in Babylon. We don't know for sure, but it was probably started in Babylon around the time when um, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. People were carried off into exile. 
In Jesus' day, most towns had a synagogue. and People would gather on the Sabbath day, and they would recite Scripture, and they would pray, and they would read from scrolls from the Law and the Prophets. And then someone would stand behind a pulpit and explain the text. And at the end, there would be a benediction, a blessing of the people. Any of that sound familiar? What do you say, church? Let's just do that, right? We don't have to reinvent it. Well, on this particular occasion, Jesus is there, and he has chosen to read. And someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah. After all, he had been making his rounds, and news was getting out about Jesus the preacher. And they wanted to know what he had to say. Now, of course, Nazareth, Nazareth wasn't a very big town. And Jesus grew up here. And so I suspect that when he stood up behind the pulpit and addressed the people, he recognized many, perhaps even all of the faces in synagogue that day. And they would have certainly recognized his face. He enrolled the scroll, and then, not by accident, found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In your Bible, this is known as Isaiah chapter 61. These scrolls didn't have chapters and verses like our Bibles do. Jesus would undoubtedly have been very familiar with the prophet Isaiah in order to find this section. This place in Isaiah is a foretelling of what Messiah, God's anointed one, would do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And this is maybe why in verse 14, Luke reminds us that Jesus went out in the Spirit and that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him because the Spirit of the Lord was indeed upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord had anointed him. And anointed him to do what? Well, look at verse 18. To proclaim. To preach. God's Messiah will be a Spirit-filled preacher. He will proclaim the good news. Proclaim the good news is actually one word in the original. It's the word from which we get the word evangelism. It means to announce good news, announce the gospel. But notice the repetition in Isaiah's prophecy. Three times, Messiah is a proclaimer. He will proclaim good news. He will proclaim liberty. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is a preacher. Have I mentioned that? And notice, and this is really important, notice to whom the Lord's preaching ministry is directed. Notice to whom the Lord's preaching ministry is directed. It is good news for the poor, freedom for the captive, sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. This will be a ministry 
of God's Messiah, the Anointed One. He will preach good news to the poor. He will proclaim freedom to the captives. He will give sight to the blind. He will set free those who are oppressed. And Isaiah says, he will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Which in my research this week, I learned is an idiom for the year of Jubilee. Have you heard of the year of Jubilee? In the Old Testament, every 50 years, God's people would hold a year of Jubilee where it was kind of a reset year. All debts in the whole country would be forgiven. Every slave would then be set free. All of the land would then be restored to its rightful owner. And Isaiah is saying that when Messiah comes, he will proclaim the year of Jubilee. Jesus will bring Jubilee. So Jesus announces this, and in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down to teach. And Luke says, every eye is fixed on him. Now this is church. The Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God, and every eye in the room fixed on the Son of God. What do you say, church? (laughs) Let's just do that. As a preacher, I have no other goal than this. I want your eyes fixed on Jesus. I want your affections fixed on Jesus. I want your whole life fixed on Jesus. And so as long as I am welcomed here and able, I will give the lion's share of my week to understanding God's word in order that I can teach it and preach it to God's people in order that they would be fixed on God's son. Just this last week, a dear sister sent me a letter to remind me and to encourage me that there is nothing in a pastor's schedule more important than preparing to preach God's word. Your God has willed that the way in which you are to be led and shaped and formed to be his chosen people is through the preaching ministry of his word. This is my charge. To this I will give my life. Here is the Lord's succinct, profound application of the text in verse 21. He says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. To this hometown crowd who knew him since he was a child, who probably watched him grow up, Jesus says, Isaiah was talking about me. I was the one who was anointed to preach the good news to the poor. I am the one who will give sight to the blind. I am the one who will set free the captive. It's me. How might that have landed in that room that Sabbath day? Well, Luke tells us how it landed, at least at first. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious word that was coming from his mouth. They were speaking well of him. They were testifying favorably, giving his... They were struck with admiration. 
And who wouldn't be, right? This is the Messiah of God revealing himself and his purpose. This is the word of God teaching the word of God. (laughs) And, And Luke says, gracious words pouring from his sinless lips. Jesus is a preacher, a spirit-filled preacher whose message is to announce good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. And there is grace upon grace pouring out of him. And everyone is glorifying him. And everyone is speaking well of him. And everyone is marveling at his words. And oh, how I wish we could stop reading there. How I wish this text would have ended there. At home with Jesus, in church with Jesus. But it didn't end there. It seems these folks were just a little too at home with Jesus. Let's pick up reading the second half of verse 22. And the people in Nazareth, they said, but isn't this Joseph's son? He just said, Isaiah wrote of him. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote this to me, this proverb, physician heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28. And when they heard these things, All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Look back to verse 20, at the end of verse 20. The eyes of all in the synagogue are fixed on him. And now look at the end of verse 28. All the synagogue is filled with wrath. What changed? How did they go from marveling to malice? How did they go from admiration to just sheer animosity? Well, the answer is hidden behind these words in verse 22. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He just claimed to be Messiah. He's telling us the great prophet Isaiah was writing about him. And these folks, to him, to them, he was just Joseph's boy. I mean, he used to play in front of my house. I know his mother. I know his brothers and sisters. His house is like three blocks this way.
And Jesus predicts, no doubt you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. That what you did in Capernaum, all those miracles, do them here. Do them here as well. So rather than believing Jesus at his word, the people in Nazareth wanted proof. You can't expect us to believe your claims. Do a miracle, son of Joseph, the carpenter's boy. Do a miracle and prove it to us. Why should we believe you? See, this is the problem in Nazareth. And sadly, this might be the problem in some of us here. If Jesus is who he says he is, well, then we have to listen to what he says. If he was truly sent from God, the anointed one of God, the Savior, then we have to listen to what he says. But not just listen to what he says about himself. We have to listen to what he says about us. And you remember, to whom did Messiah preach? To the poor, to the prisoner, to the blind, to the oppressed. Well, what does that mean? If you don't consider yourself spiritually poor, what if you think you're doing just all right spiritually? What if you don't think you're a prisoner? What if you consider yourself free? Isn't that what the Jews said to Jesus in John chapter 8? We've never been prisoners. What if you don't think you're blind? What if you think you see things just exactly as they are? What if you don't self-identify as broken or oppressed? What if you self-identify as reasonably put together? And so then here comes this hometown prophet back home that you've known for years and has known you for years, and he stands up in synagogue one day and says, Nah, fam, I've seen your life. I've seen your heart. You are spiritually destitute. You're enslaved to sin. You are blind, and you are deeply broken. And I'm here to fix you and set you free. What are you going to say to that? The good news of Jesus Christ is only good news if you are willing to accept that what God says about your life is truer than what you think is true about your life, which is that you need saving. You need forgiven, you need freedom, and you need healing. But my friend, if you will not admit to your sin, then you will not receive forgiveness for your sin. Does anyone remember what the Lord Jesus said to the church at Laodicea? In Revelation chapter 2, you, you all think that you're rich and prosperous and that you don't need anything. But you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. He said that to a church. 
the church people. So brothers and sisters, please hear me. It is entirely possible to attend church every week, to see Jesus in the text every week, to hear Jesus in the text every week, and to speak well of him, and even to marvel at his words, and to not be saved. Until you admit and acknowledge that you are morally destitute, captive to your sin, spiritually blind and deeply broken, you, dear friend, will never see your need for a Savior. So you will never cry to Him. You will just consider Jesus a man, a teacher, and little more. So dear friends, please, please listen to what Jesus says next. These stories about Elijah and Elisha might seem unrelated, but they are very much related to what's going on in Nazareth, and they're very much related to what might be going on in your heart. I can't see your heart. I don't know how you're processing what Jesus is saying here. Just ask that you would submit yourself to the Lord and listen. There was a severe famine in Elijah's day, and there were lots of widows. And God sent his prophet only to one widow in Zarephath outside of Israel. Some of you are going to recognize this story from 1 Kings 17. There was a famine in the land, and God sent Elijah out of Israel to a widow who God said, she'll feed you. And Elijah meets this widow, and she has just a handful of flour and a little bit of oil left. And she's making her last meal to feed herself and her son before they starve. And the prophet tells her, don't worry, make me food first. And then feed yourself and your son. My God that I serve has promised that you, to you that if you do this, if you believe him, that your flour and your oil will not run out until this famine is over. And this Gentile woman, she has to put everything on God's word from a stranger at the risk of her own life and the life of her only son. She has to go all in. If this man is wrong, if this man is lying, I will die, and so will my son. But she believes the word of God through Elijah. And she makes him food. And God is faithful to his word, and the flour and the oil never run out. And she lives. And then Jesus moves on to a story in the life of the prophet Elisha. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman, who was a Syrian, also an outsider. And Naaman has leprosy, which is a skin disease that was going to kill him. He was dying. And Naaman's slave girl, who was an Israelite, tells him about a prophet back in Israel that can heal him. And now Naaman is a general in the Syrian army. He's a very rich man. He's a very powerful man. 
And so Naaman takes a bunch of money and an entourage of people, and he goes to the prophet's house in Israel. And Elisha doesn't even come out of his house to greet him. He basically sends him a text message from his couch. And he says, go down to the river and wash yourself seven times, and you'll be good. Smiley face emoji. And Naaman, Naaman is furious. Doesn't he know who I am? I'm a general in the Syrian army. Wash like a river, wash in a river like some kind of dog? We have, we have better rivers back home. And he storms off. And one of his servants convinces him to humble himself and to believe the word of God from the prophet and to wash himself in the river. And he does. And he is healed. Verse 28. When the people in the synagogue heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of town and sought to throw him off the cliff. But he passes through their midst. And Luke writes, simply, he went away. You see, the Nazarenes understood what it is that Jesus was saying about them from these two stories. He is the prophet of God. And they had to believe his word and trust him. But since they had refused his word, they would not receive his forgiveness and healing. And there would be no miracle performed at Nazareth. He was saying that a Syrian general and a Gentile widow showed themselves worthy of the blessing of God, and they hadn't. That widow knew she was poor, knew she was going to die. She had to trust that God would be faithful to his word. And she did, and she was saved. Naaman knew he was sick. He knew he was going to die. He had to trust that God would be faithful to his word. And he obeyed. And he was saved. And the Nazarenes had received the word from the prophet of God, Jesus Christ, who was greater than Elijah and greater than Elisha. But they would not accept that they were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Because to them, Jesus was just Joseph's son, not God's son. They were too at home with Jesus. And so they could not accept the words coming from his mouth as the words of God. And they determined to put an end to him. Sought to push him off a cliff. But of course, it wasn't Jesus' timing. He wasn't going to die that way anyway. And the end of verse 30 is just deeply sobering. He went away. This same Lord Jesus has come to us today, just like he did the people in Nazareth. And he has spoken to us today, just like he spoke to them. Hear now the good news that he was preaching to them. It is the same good news 
he is preaching to us today. That in his obedience to his heavenly Father, he would go to a cross where he would suffer and he would die for the sins of his people. And God would raise him from the dead three days later. And all who turn to him in faith, believing what he has said, will receive the benefits of his life at his death. Their spiritual poverty will be replaced by the unimaginable riches of his righteousness. Those enslaved to their own sin are set free. The eyes of those who are blind are opened and they see the oppressed are healed. The year of Jubilee has come. Sin debts are paid. Those enslaved to sin are freed and all that was lost in our rebellion against God has been restored to us through Christ. But like the widow and like the Syrian, my friend, you must believe these words. You must accept that God's word is true. You must humble yourself and give your life to him today. Whether you are hearing this news for the first time or for the 400th time, repent of your sins and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, do that today. Stick around after the service is over and ask someone who looks like a Christian to explain this in greater detail. This has been the witness of the Christian church for 2,000 years. This is the same news being preached in churches across this world today in places like Russia and Ukraine. Our brothers, our sisters, gathered in God's name to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, just like we're doing here today. This is going to continue, and this is going to go on until every eye is fixed on him and every knee bows to him. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have failed to believe what your word has said is true about us. That we have been like the Nazarenes even this week. We've not seen ourselves as poor and blind and enslaved. We've rejected your word and sought to reimagine our lives quite differently. We ask that you would forgive us. And so often, Lord, we've sat under your word, which you gave to convict us and made ourselves believe that this word was for someone else. Lord, would you humble us under your mighty hand and raise us up and give us faith to believe what you say. Give us hearts that receive your word rather than critiquing it. Give us hearts willing to change 
rather than justify our stubbornness. And give us eyes that are fixed on Christ. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, we'd like to do something at the end of the sermon called an assurance of pardon. And the purpose of this is to just encourage your heart that if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, what the Bible has said about you is true. And what the Bible says about you is true from Acts chapter 28, 26 rather, verse 18, that God has sent his word to you today to open your eyes so that you may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith.